The following is brought to you by Total Seal Piston Rings, the leader in ring seal technology. TotalSeal.com Hello and welcome to another edition of Hidden Horsepower presented by Total Seal. My name is Joe Costello and we have got another great episode for you. Joining me as my co-host on this episode, we're going to be down in NASCAR country. So of course it is Lake Speed Junior. Lake, we've got another episode. And from what I understand, you are super excited about this one. Oh, Joe, I'm totally pumped up. Uh, This is one of my real heroes in the engine building business. I mean, a a true legend in the sport, at least in our area. So some people that don't know his name, they're going to get it straightened out today and they'll know the name Larry Wallace after today absolutely and that's why we do the show sometimes we're going into the technical side of it big time sometimes we're just learning about the personalities and trying to gain something from the experience of others so let's bring him on the show larry wallace engines he has done a lot in the world of motorsports started out with keith dorton who has been a guest on hidden horsepower now we have mr larry wallace larry welcome to the show how are you I'm doing good. Thank you for being here. Super excited. So when you hear Lake talk about like you're one of his, you know, ultimate legends and icon of engine building, uh, you know, how does that make you feel to think that, you know, this young kid who was running around shops uh, in the 80s uh, looks up to you like that? Well, makes me feel pretty good. I think he's hurting for heroes, but I I feel (laughs) appreciate that. (laughs) Well, listen, my other day, Larry, I was talking to my dad. And he w- we were just kind of talking about some stuff, and he was reminiscing, uh, and he brought your name up. He said, you know, I think he was one of the most talented engine guys in the business, had to be you. And I said, I, I can't disagree with you on that. Um, I, there's lots of stories we're going to cover today, and I think it is interesting to, to kind of delve back to your career. Like you said, starting at Automotive Specialists, uh, that you're unlike a lot of the guys in, in NASCAR today, you're actually from the Carolinas. You grew up there and you weren't somebody that moved in to the Carolinas to go NASCAR racing. You're, you're a homegrown guy. So you know, talk a little bit about what it was like growing up uh, in the Charlotte area in the early days at NASCAR and how you got into working at Keith's place. I was a bit of a gearhead ever since I was a young kid, you know, and, uh, started playing with go-karts and mini bikes and whatever, anything I could get a hold of to tear apart. And by the time I was 16, you know, I had my, my hot rod and, and, uh, Keith Dorton was the local, local legend, all us, you know, hot rodders. And I was able to get a job with him mm-hmm. part-time when I was in high school and, uh, started grinding cylinder heads, sort of stuck with cylinder heads for most of my career. And then, uh, eventually got a job working for, for Robert Yates. And then I worked with him for about 11 years. I left there and started company called Powertech Engines. I think that was, I started for Keith when I was in high school. I think I was 75 and then uh, went to work for Robert around around 80, I think it was, worked through 1991 for him. And then I started Powertech Engines and ended up doing some NASCAR deals. And uh, that's pretty much, pretty much all there is to it. Uh, I'd say, you know, anybody that well, grew that, up in this area, I mean, you're really exposed to racing. I mean, you can't, if you get rid of any kind of yeah, a gear, you you're going to end up in racing growing up here. You can't dodge it. You left Roberts right around the same time my dad came in and drove there for a little bit there. And that was his first time in the Ford camp was right around 90, 91. So that must have been where, I mean, obviously, he was been around NASCAR a long time and with you and probably cross paths mm-hmm. in the garage area. But I think that was that talking about that Robert Yates era 
and his early time at Ford is where you your name came up, and that's how they kind of got on that. So I was always kind of curious about where those paths crossed. Uh, so that's kind of good to know. Yeah, the Ford deal, you know, up until well, up until I went with Robert, let's say even from the early years, let's see, eighty two, eighty two, and eighty three. You know, Bobby Allison, he won a championship. We run Chevrolet, and then I believe it was around eighty five or six we got hooked up with the he ended up buying the Harry Rainier deal and you know, running a Ford. And uh, I love the Ford because when we went to the, you know, by that time we were running aluminum heads and the Ford head was, it was just uh, so much more potential there as far as, I always told him, told him the cylinder head with, a, with the valve layout being cannon valves and, and staggered valve locations, you pretty much, you know, weld the heads up and make them any way you wanted to. NASCAR inspectors weren't going to catch on to it because they weren't real sure where the valve was supposed to be anyway. So they, uh, they, they wouldn't notice a major change. <laughs> so every every set of cylinder heads we did works just drastically different, you know, as far as valve location and angles, and uh, we learned a lot. It was, it was a lot of fun. That re- reminds me, Joe, of that story that John Callis was telling at the Engine Performance Expo about their their cheated up Pontiac heads. Absolutely. <laughs> well, know, they were trying because they were they were trying to keep up with Larry in, in the Yates head. You know. Yeah. Well, the Ford head starting out being a staggered valve head. Uh, you know, with the the compound valve angle and all. Like I said, it was a little bit superior in design, but the biggest thing is, like I say, because with the way they locate, you can move your Chevrolet valves around much at all since we're in line. You know, you're going to see it right off. But uh, with the compound valve angle and the staggered valves on the forward head, it was just, you can move them a lot and nobody would pick up on it. So uh, we just kept, you know, gradually improving it with each set we did. At the time, we were basically welding the cylinder heads up, making the combustion chambers a solid deck, putting in no valve guide holes and just start with a clean slate each time we built them. And, we had so many variations. Uh, I'd say there's probably a dozen variations we did before we finally set on the, the final Yates head. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so it, uh, it, it wasn't that we were all that smart. We just, we just threw so much at it. I mean, sooner or later, you'll find something better, you know? Well, I like the fact that you're, you're suggesting basically that the, the initial design of the Ford confused the tech inspectors because they didn't know where things were supposed to be. If this one's a little bit different, they won't notice, whereas the Chevrolet, it would all be in a line that gave you freedom. And that's what we, we talk about all the yeah. time, right? The freedom to create and to kind of yeah. do things as you see put. And, and <clears throat> certainly it worked. Correct, and at the, also at the same time, there really weren't any rules that said you could. They never really clarified that till later, and then some years later, and then, and then Ford decided, okay, well, this is running better than, than our conventional head, so they took that cylinder head and copied it and made it a standard Ford head, and that was you know, submitted to NASCAR, and then it was approved, and then from that day forward, then you couldn't move valve, uh, change valve locations or, or change valve angles. But up until that time, there really wasn't a rule. So it, it was one of the deals we knew, if they ever knew it, they would make a rule. So we wanted to keep it hidden, not because we're trying to hide the fact that we're cheating, because technically we weren't cheating because there wasn't a rule against it. Uh, just We just knew that if they ever figured it out, they would make a rule immediately. So uh, that was a big advantage to, to the board here, that they would never pick up on it. For everybody listening, rewind that part, listen to that again, because this is the story of Larry's career. <laughs> if people are familiar with NASCAR, and especially like a guy like Ray Everham, that we can say, hey, most of that rule book, on chassis stuff is because of Ray Abraham's creative interpretation of what wasn't written. Uh, Mr. Wallace here, uh, I think most of that rule book on engine parts <laughs> is because of his yeah. creative interpretation of what uh, Yeah, I've had a book. few NASCAR inspectors tell me that. Uh, <laughs> they said, you know, if we put initials beside all the rule changes, it would be a lot of LWs on the engine side of it. And I said, well, 
You know, that means I'm doing my job right. But uh, I remember one inspector. I found his name. We always called him Wolfie. I don't know if you remember him or not, but he was he was a really nice guy. He after I sort of semi-retired, he used to come by the shop quite a bit, and he used to pick at me about that. He said, "Yeah, if we put initials beside all the rules that you you were made us change. You'd have a lot of LWs in there." <laughs> well, this is kind of a sidebar story here, Joe, but I think it's 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 a it's an appropriate story. Larry, I think probably the last time I asked a favor of you before uh coming on Hidden Horsepower was I was in Lakeland, Florida, and I got a phone call. And if anybody happens to know anything about Joe Gibbs Racing, the the main phone number at a number there and it ended in a different digit but it was one digit off of that and i was like hmm i've never seen that phone number before but i know it's coming from gibbs i think so i should probably answer the phone answer the phone it was coach gibbs he didn't call me very often when i worked there so it was like okay coach what you need and um this was right after matt kenseth had won the fontana race um in a toyota and in in post-race inspection, they found that one of the connecting rods was two grams lighter than what the rule specified. And then the what was really threw them off was that the connecting rod on the same journal, right next to it, was two grams heavier than the rule. And all the other ones in the engine were right on spec, right where they should be. Well, you know, by the rules, that engine was disqualified, which under NASCAR's rule for that year meant the the 20 car was going to have to sit home for a couple of races. Uh, it was a big deal. And, of course, Gibbs was going to appeal the this ruling because they were like, it's two grams, it's, the total weight is actually all the same. This is not, what, heck, we didn't even build the engine. It was a TRD-built engine. Um, so yeah, long story that. short, <clears throat> Coach Gibbs called me asking for some help because, and he, he had a conversation with the guys at Toyota and had a conversation with Mark Cronquist, who was the head engine builder at, at, at Gibbs. And of course, you know, TRD had built the engine and they were like, no, Mark and the guys at TRD said, well, NASCAR is not going to listen to us. I mean, you're right. It didn't make a difference. They will not listen to us because they're going to say that we're defending ourselves. And so Coach had said, hey, listen, I know that through the oil program, you deal with several engine builders um, that are not tied to Toyota, not tied to NASCAR. Maybe one of them could be interested in, in, you know, kind of vouching for us that this was, one, not intentional, and two, it wasn't an advantage. And so, Larry, you're one of the guys that I called, and, yeah, back to that rule book thing, it's like – pretty sure most of all those rules <laughs> related to your <laughs> engines so you yeah if, if anybody could en- enlighten them so i was never involved after the making the com- contact between you and coach gibbs uh share what you're feeling comfortable sharing about that <laughs> episode yeah that was uh i don't know i reckon they they have to enforce it to the letter of the law but they end up you know they 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 let it go, and which rightfully so, because like I said, the rod beside it was was heavy. In fact, there were several rods in the motor that were quite a bit over the minimum weight, so they were more than more more than within the rules as far as I'm concerned. That thing, you know, that 
rod being a couple grams lighter right beside it didn't make a bit of difference as far as performance and uh so yeah they they had quite a few people there testifying i never that's like going into courtroom if you ever served on jury duty that's about like what it was like i mean it was strange but i never never first time i'd ever done that and uh but they they finally ruled in his favor and, and like i said rightfully so i mean there was no way it was any advantage to him larry what's that like when lake calls you asking for help is he uh you know, is it like, help me, man, or is it uh, like, hey? <laughs> no, he, he don't really call that often. Uh, <laughs> we used to have some discussions about all early on. Uh, I remember when he when I first talked to him right after I left Penske, we got talking about all, and he was, you know, doing a Joe Gibbs oil, and I said, man, we sure do need it. These are a lot of street street guys out here trying to run modern oil with a flat tap of camshafts, and it's not working out too good. And uh, he he. He definitely, I found out right quick, he knows a lot more about motor oil than I do. But uh, he, he definitely filled a, a need when he when they got that Joe Gibbs oil for, for getting the zinc in it and well, stuff for flat type of cams. I remember walking in that in your shop over there on Stowe Road, and we were having that conversation, and, and you shared a story uh, about your experience when you were doing engines at Penske with the flat tap deal and, and your sponsor and something about uh, – the Spintron block that got destroyed doing an oil test. Do you mind sharing that story? Oh, they were they were determined. They wanted to advertise that uh, they wanted to advertise that you know we're racing on Sunday with the, with the same oil that you can buy for your street car. And and, and, and I kept arguing with them because I'd done been down that path quite a few years before that. You know, way back when the manufacturers went to roller cams and had to take the zinc out of the oil for the catalytic converters. So, you know, that's one of the main reasons I think most of them went. To, to roller cams uh, and I was trying to explain to him yeah, it's not going to work but the guy that was really pushing it was in he wasn't really he wasn't an engineer he was he was a marketing guy and even the mm-hmm. guy Bob Patchy it was the engineer at mobile was like yeah, this won't work I said yeah I know what do you want me to do he said he wants you to test it and I said well I'll test it but it's not going to work so they sent the oil down and uh, we when in stack springs up on an engine on the spin trying all 16 springs on and uh we ran it and it didn't run we wiped all 16 lobes out and i sent him the cam and the lifters back and he's all and i said here you go and uh like he got the message then <laughs> yeah so they didn't push that anymore all right forgive me for my ignorance but just as a hidden horsepower listener and I am so lucky to be able to listen in the uh, the first uh, record session. You know, zinc, flat tap it, roller cam. Why not? So, well, um, I think Lake can probably so, answer that better than I can. But uh, I just know what's needed. Yeah. So essentially, zinc. What he's talking about is a chemical compound called zinc dialkyl diphosphate. That's the the fancy technical name. Is an and I wear additive that is in motor oil, and it's been in motor oil since it was invented in the late 40s, early 50s. And back when production cars had flat tappet cams, which was all the way up through the late 80s, uh, even into the early 90s in some cases, um, you had these flat tappet camshafts, and the ZDP was the and I wear additive that kept the camshaft from going flat and wearing out too quickly. But in NASCAR up until just a few years ago still maintained that you had to run a flat type of camshaft. And that's kind of where the, the NASCAR uh, guys learned the lesson the hard way when as the off-the-shelf oils 
started reducing the amount of ZDP in the oil in order to maintain uh, catalytic converter protection performance. That's kind of like what Larry was saying, is that the ZDP creates that anti-wear film on your camshaft, which is great for your camshaft, but any oil that gets burned or consumed by the engine, that ZDP makes it to the catalytic converter, and that same anti-wear film, when it forms on the catalytic converter, reduces the efficiency of the catalytic converter. So the EPA said, nope, can't do that. Got to reduce the level of zinc in the oil. And that started in the early 2000s, reducing the level of zinc in the oil. And that's when all the race teams that used to go by to the parts store and just go buy oil and everything was fine, all of a sudden started losing their camshafts. And like Larry was saying, and you got- as that same era, right, you had some big RPMs going on. Um, so you had some pretty aggressive cam profiles and spring pressures so it was they weren't able to race on off-the-shelf motor oil at that time but a lot of people didn't know that and in a lot of street stuff now like Honda engine stuff on small engines the overhead cam stuff it's really not a roller it's more of a flat tapping type design and it works but you've got such tiny valves and such low low spring pressure you can get away with it the older stuff, exactly. especially like if you go and guys got a street engine like a big block Chevy that's got big valves from the factory, you know, those things had fairly stout spring pressure coupled with a fairly high ratio rocker like a one electric like a one seven three. Uh those mm-hmm. things would wipe out cam loads really quick. Just a standard street engine, uh, if you if you used a modern oil without the zinc and uh it's uh well Lake when you said you when you came by the shop that time I I told you that you know, we need to people needed a good street oil for these old cars. There's a friend of mine had a big block and he came by and he told me he, you know, about he's all he's real proud of his motor, just got it built, put it in the fifty seven Chevy and it was a big block and he said I thought they asked him was it flat tap but he said, Yes, yeah, flat tap and I told him about the oil and he he acted like I didn't know what I was talking about and it wasn't a month later he came over and said, You're not gonna believe what happened to my engine. He said, I wiped out an exhaust load. <laughs> I said, You need to call Lake if you some oil though <laughs> Yeah, so I mean the the whole oil experience was again the timing was uh, was perfect to be at Gibbs when around the time all of this stuff was happening and had obviously the with your relationship with the guys at Mobile when you were at Penske you know they made that custom oil for you guys that had all the correct additives in it to enable that valve train uh, to turn the RPM that it did and same thing at Gibbs and then we you know brought that same product to the market and it was obviously a game changer in in, in the industry because it was the right product at the right time and then we were able to to help educate a lot of people like your buddy uh some of them learned the hard way and some Mm -hmm. of them you know listened ahead of time and said you know what i don't think i want to do that i think i'll try to avoid that and it 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 worked out pretty good for them um speaking of valve trains and flat tappets at that time one thing that I mean, I would love to hear some of the background on is 10,000 RPM with a flat tappet engine. Um, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I'm correct in stating that engines that you were part of developing and designing and producing were the first ones in competition to turn 10,000 RPM intentionally, not because the driver missed the shift. So um, talk to us and share a little bit about that experience of what you guys did there at Penske with the um, the high RPM cup engine. 
we we built our own spintron back before people really had spintrons. We built used a four cylinder engine. We got from Ford and uh, hooked it directly to the camshaft and started. Do, well, I actually did that one still at Roberts and started working with some, you know doing spin fixture work. And we didn't have a lot of instrumentation. You could just go by the sound and tell when a thing was out of control and in trouble. Mm-hmm. But uh, and when I started PowerTech and kept you know continuing to do that and. We were looking for a gain, and, and I remember we were, we were trying all kinds of stuff, and I had a guy working for me, Corey Burrison, that uh, I put him back there on yeah. the Spintron, and he was just try, throwing anything and everything at it. And uh, the particular cam and spring combination running at the time, he he just threw a, I think we're running a 165 rocker. I mean, this is way back. And uh, he put a 175 on it. And we had enough room to coal bind that it didn't, didn't coal bind, and he spun it, and it went like two, 300 RPM higher before it floated. And he told me that, and I said, "Corey, there's no way you're 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 accelerating the valve quicker. You're opening the valve farther. There's no way it RPM higher." So we went back there, and he went through the test again. And he was right, and it did. And what we realized then, what we're doing, we were just, you know, we we're pushing the spring to the point of of almost total stack up, and it helped control the valve over the nose. And so in this instance, by actually adding lift, we better use of spring the valve train was in better control and we also gained power to one seven five rocker and uh so that just sort of opened up a whole new way of looking at things and uh and then once you know i sold the deal to roger Pinsky and then he had close ties with ilmore and and ilmore mm-hmm. really really helped us a bunch with valve springs uh the, the valve spring technology was so much more advanced than the formula one stuff and uh with the valve springs they gave us, and then they also designed us a rocker that was made out of steel where everybody would run aluminum. And they're steel, but they're extremely light because they were so thin, and uh, but they were much more rigid. And it just, you know, it's one thing after another over a period of time, we just kept, you know, improving the valve train and, and basically ran that same cam profile that had run for, God, for 10 years and just kept going up on rocker ratio and the different springs. And uh, we were able to get it to... That same cam profile, when we started, we could turn it a little over eight when I first started using it, and it just kept creeping up, creeping up, and that same cam profile just by working with rockers and springs and fish rods and so on that we finally got it to where you, it was safe to 10,000. Uh, <laughs> Wait, here we go. Hit pause, hit rewind, and listen to that again. Same cam profile. And Billy Godbold, right. I can hear him cheering from Memphis, Tennessee right now, right? Um that all you did was change push rods, springs, valves. What, what else lifters, did I miss? Yeah. Push rods, springs, yeah, valves, and lifters. Pretty much every piece of the valve train. <laughs> yeah. Other uh, than the camshaft profile. Every, everything from the and cam load up there. got changed dramatically. Yeah. Everything got changed. Wow. Yeah, I, I know Scooter tells me the stories about um, when he was at Sonoma. Um, because he was there when one of your engines got torn down by NASCAR and as opposed to normally tearing down the engine in a secluded corner of the garage where no one can see it. Um, they did it at Sonoma, which there isn't really a garage. So they did it next to the, uh, the NASCAR inspector uh, hauler. And they, so everybody could see it. I, I remember, I have to admit to you years ago, right? I'm sorry. I apologize. I, I did watch. 
I was sitting there, and I think Robert Yates was to my left, and Ernie Elliott was to my right. And we're all watching. Remember, uh, Scooter tells a story about that was the first time he saw that steel rocker arm that wasn't a stamp steel rocker arm. And him scratching his head like, wait, all we've been making is all these, you know, aluminum, you know, rocker arms to make them light. And wait, this thing's made out of steel. That's counterintuitive. How can this steel rocker arm be better than the lighter aluminum rocker arm? And everybody else is, you know, blowing their stuff up trying to turn 9,000 RPM. And you just said you turned 10. So talk about that yeah. a little bit because I think that's a really key un- un- understanding. There. Well, I say the credit's got to go to the Elmore and their engineers. They're, they're the one that designed that rocker. But when you, you look at it, you first think, well, steel's here and aluminum, but there's, there's two things that go on with the rocker. One is, is you know, the moment of inertia. If, if you've got, you probably can build it just by, by weight. If you're just looking at restricted weight, aluminum, aluminum rocker's still going to be better. But it's not better when actual you go to use it because rigidity is really important, too. Uh, if, if that rocker mm-hmm. bends at all, it acts sort of like a pushrod bend. And, you know, a pushrod bends and it acts like a pole vaulting. And, and throws a lot more lift into it, a lot more action, other than what you're getting off of the low, uh, cam load, and that makes that wrecks havoc with the valve train. Well, the rocker's the same way. If you get a bend in motion in the rocker, you get that, you know, extra lift thrown into it at a bad time, and you lose control of it. So, it's it's while the the moment of inertia may be a little bit higher with a steel, you more than offset it because it's rigid, and and it it just it just it just works. I mean, it's made out of a the ones we were doing, I think, is made out of uh, like a bearing race material. It's uh, really hard, and it it is it worked. And and they really, you know, they did a good job of really cutting the weight down. It was amazingly light, even though it was steel. And another big thing that did, you know, they did away with the adjuster. There's no adjuster in that rocker. It's suggested by really okay. That was, uh, it was a la- that was in the last down. one. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't even recognize that. That, that one didn't even yeah. have an adjuster in it. It was already going to the last cap design already then. Huh. Yeah. Well, actually, we weren't doing it with last cast. We just had little shims where it bolts down. You know, the two, the two bolts that okay. bolt it down, we just put little shims under the, under the stand where it bolts down. Larry, I'd like to get in he here. Was, it was a pain in the butt to just rockers. I mean, you, you talk about, you know, you take several hours to just <laughs> oh, rocker <yeah>. arms. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, no, no quarter turn and call it good, right? No, forget about that. No, no. <laughs> Got to be perfect. Larry, I'd like to go back to when you were working with uh, with Keith Dorton. He was one of our early guests on Hidden Horsepower, and I think Lake and I were both surprised at how many people listened to that podcast early on, and uh, people like loved that one, and it continues to be one of our most popular editions. Ad- and so I'm thinking about young Larry working over there. I'm thinking about what you became, all the LWs next to rules in the rule book, and I want to know if that's something that was learned, like to look at a situation and then try to read between the lines of the rule, of what's allowed, what's not allowed, what I can do. That creative thinking that you have, was that something that was learned or was that something that you always had and was uh, allowed to like blossom? And the reason I'm asking is because I think that that's a, a, a style of thinking that is necessary but not often seen and maybe it can be developed. So take me back to young Larry working with Keith 
and, uh, you know, trying to solve problems that ar- arose? Well, I, first off, i got to say, Keith missed his call. I think he should have been a teacher. Uh, he's trained half the, half the engine builders out there, I think. Uh, I say he's trained them. They worked a lot of their work for him one time or another. And uh, so he, he, too bad he didn't get paid to be a teacher. He, we probably all owe him a little something, but because uh, he's, he's trained a lot of us. But uh, I, I'd say the biggest thing for me, you know, in doing, doing this, I've had the pleasure of meeting a lot of very smart people. Uh, a lot of engineers, a lot of people that I considered way smarter than myself. I think the thing that, well, little I did, I did it because I just had a passion for it. And I think I just, I just, I didn't quit thinking about it. You know, that even when you went home or you went on a vacation, you were sitting there thinking about it. You know, you just, it's just, I don't know, you just couldn't let go of it. Probably, I, that's the way I was. I think a lot of people's got a passion for it. That's the way they are. But uh, like I said, I've met a lot of smart people. I think I, I think I met people I consider to be far more smarter than I am. I just, it's just, you just keep digging, and over time, you just you just learn by just constantly doing it, and and, and working around people like Keith, you know, early on, you know, you, you just you learn you learn a lot from working with somebody like that. Excellent, thank you for that. And back to something that comes up all the time on the show, right? Surround yourself with people uh, smarter than you are, and it'll it'll work out well for you. Yeah, I always, you know, and that's another thing I was blessed with it when when I started that company, PowerTech. It's just like. The Lord just sent them to me. I mean, every every employee I hired there for a long time was just like they were perfect for what we needed at the time. And uh, I always said I want I don't I want to hire somebody smarter than me. I don't want to hire anybody dumber than me. And uh, I was able to get a lot of good people working for me. Well, it's cool that you know you're talking about Corey, a guy again known uh, Exodon, all the stuff they've done. Uh, the guy has yeah, been there, done that on the valve train side. Uh, just for again to the listeners to get, give them some perspective, you were talking about you know deflection. You mentioned in the rocker arm uh, story there. You also mentioned push rod deflection. So talk a little bit about or share what used to be the idea on push rods and what kind of thicknesses of a push rod you'd have, and then talk about what you ended up to be able to turn 10,000 RPM how that push rod was different than what you used to use in the early days. Yeah. I'm almost embarrassed, embarrassed to say how long we stuck with the little tiny five sixteenths push rod. It, it wasn't until too much later on that we started going to the larger diameter and then the tapered push rods, you know, just because, I mean, you know, they were considerably heavy, but heavier than, than the five sixteenths push rods were running. I think we're running five sixteenths push rods with an 80,000 wall. I mean, those things were little, but, when we went to the larger push rods, that was that was one that was a big game. I mean, that was probably a couple hundred RPM just there, just uh, as far as you know, being able to turn another couple hundred RPM more just by going to the larger diameter push rod. I think we finally set it on seven sixteenths. I think, like I said, I've been at it the NASCAR deal for some time, but I think some of the later stuff, the Toyota stuff, I know I've seen some of it. They went to half inch, but we we stayed seven sixteenths with a double taper, like either 125 or 165 wall for a long time. But uh, that was, especially on the Ford, because they had fairly long push rods, that was that was a big game. And that was about going to Tool Steel, DLC? Uh, it was yeah, we started with, the, you know, using the old chilled iron lifter way back, and we were actually lightening them up. Uh, God, this thing's a hard to machine, but we would go in and machine <laughs> the body and thin them down and, and, and thin them up quite a bit. Of course, you couldn't go as thin and light as you could with tool steel. Uh, that was the next big step. We went to tool steel, and again, that that was Ilmore's design. They they uh, they chose the material. They actually exactly the same material. I think they made the rockers out of. But you had to but uh, you had to have a DLC coating for it to work. 
Right, yeah, because the materials gave you gave you the strength to make it light, like you said. But right. then for material compatibility, you had to. Now, were those cams back then? At that point, were those Stalite welded cams, or were those tool steel cams as well? No, no, it was the the old, the old Ford factory cam. We were still able to use it with okay. uh, with those uh, flat lifters. They were. We okay, actually cool. took instead of running a crown lifter, we ran a flat lifter for a long time. Uh, we went to the tool steel with a DLC coating we made it flat and then the lobe was was flat we grind a little recess on the heel of the lobe towards grind or taper off half of the lobe on the heel of the lobe that would make the lifter spin a little bit but then going up the ramp and over the nose of the lobe it was actually flat and the lifter was flat okay so it'd spin on the heel but on the acceleration ramp and over the nose it was pure sliding right Mm -hmm. cool the reason for doing that was the tool steel and, and with the DLC coating, I mean, the DLC coating is there. It's not going to wear in like you normally with flat tap of cam. You've got a, you've got a tapered lobe and a taper and a crown, you know, a crown faced on, on the lifter. And you right. have a break-in period. Because initially you may just have just a, a hairline width of, of contact. And then as it wears in, mm-hmm. then that contact patch gets wider until you get a fairly full contact all the way across the nose. There's no wear in a break-in with a DLC-coated lifter. I mean, it is what it is when it, it's, it's not going to wear at all. So you've got to have your contact patch pretty much set up from day one. I mean, as soon as it's put together because it's not going to wear in for you at all. And for those who are listening, DLC is diamond-like carbon, which is extremely hard, extremely thin, and very low friction. So you apply that coating to the to the tool steel lifter, and like you're explaining with the geometry, you've got the contact you already need. And then in that sliding regime, uh, because it is a essentially a dry film lubricant itself, you didn't have those concerns or worries about it scuffing or something like that because of the physical properties of that coating itself. Plus, you had the good oil in there, too. So you, you covered it from both sides, which is nice. So. Yeah. I know years ago we used to run the, when we were lightening up the this is sort of a funny story for me anyway I, I we used to run those chilled iron lifters and lighten them up and we were trying and we tried every kind of carbide you can imagine when we we're machining those things the idea of trying to lighten them up and you could get maybe two lifters and after a place to cut or, or regrind it or whatever and it just it was mm-hmm. wearing us out but at the same time we found out the wood brothers were doing the same thing and leonard wood we were sort of swapping information back on stuff helping each other a little bit and he said i'm I got a tool for cutting those lifters, and I'm going to bring it up there and show it to you. And so he brought it up there, and he comes carrying in this little cardboard box, and, like, I'm expecting to see something just, like, something amazing in this box because he says he can machine, like, a whole set of lifters and not a sharpened cutter. And I've had every tool salesman in the world out there, you know, trying to help me find the right carbide to cut these lifters, and nothing's working. Mm-hmm. He opens this box up, and, and I almost busted out laughing. It was a masonry bit. He ground four flats on it and profiled the carbide. You know, a masonry bit is has got a carbide in it. And he mm-hmm. had profiled that carbide, the shape he wanted, and we set the thing up in the lathe. And I said, Leonard, you can't tell me this. He said, I'm telling you, the carbide on a masonry bit is just the right grade of carbide. He said, it works better than anything I've found. I set that thing and started cutting lifters, and I cut a whole set of lifters and never touched it. And I said, I've had every machine tool salesman in the country trying to find me the right carbide. And here he comes walking in with a masonry bit. The, the Wood Brothers, those guys are just—I mean, they're—they're—they're they're they're smart. <laughs> They—they've awesome. got stuff figured out. 
And so why did you not uh, well, start to sell that to everybody else? No, nah, I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> well, no, I, really, yeah, I, think, I really think at the time we were the only ones, that, us and, and the Woodrows, I think were probably the only ones at the time that had started lighting and lifting, really. This was back in the 80s. It was a long time ago. Well, it's just back then, right? Everybody said there were so few rules. And so it gave you quite, you know, room to be creative. And when you found something, you had to keep it quiet. I mean, Put this way, Joe, in 1985, 1986, 88, in that era in there, there would never be a Hidden Horsepower podcast, even if the technology was there, because no one would come on and no one would say, would say anything, because everything was <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uber secret. No, there's no way. That could never happen. Yeah. No. No. But Leonard shared his secret with you. Well, we were trading stuff. Yeah. Ah, there it is. See, he was trying to get yeah. something out of you. It's like, I'll serve up the bit and see what I get in return. Yeah, that's what I mean. We, we, you know, that this, those kind of deals went on all the time. You didn't just go out and just yeah. give something to somebody. You're going to have to race him on Sunday. So. There was a currency. Yeah. There you go. Oh, yeah. I, I like it. Well, and, you know, Lake, you mentioned this, and I think the Hidden Horsepower listeners uh, have noticed that, that as time has gone by, people are more willing to share secrets and try to bring new people in on it, right? Like, they, we need more racers. We need more racing engines. We need more knowledgeable people. You don't want somebody to go buy a bunch of stuff and blow it all up and get discouraged and then never do this ever again. Oh, well, exactly. It's when I had called Larry and asked him if he would you know, do this ep- episode. It's one of the things that I was telling him. I said, you would be shocked at the number of 564th, 564th, 316th ring sets we sell today at Total Seal. Larry, what was the last um, ring package you put in a race engine, thickness-wise? Just give us a ballpark. I forgot the metric numbers. It's like a 39,000 or something like it was thickness. That's a one millimeter. Yeah. So and that's one of the dirt light model motors you were doing back then? No, for some reason I was thinking it was less than one millimeter. Maybe it was one millimeter. Yeah, 039. Yeah, 039. 039 one millimeter. 039 will be one millimeter. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's a one millimeter. I mean, heck, you know, Joe and everybody who's listening to this at any kind of length knows that the test engine we've got out there at Ronnie Shaver's place has got 0.7 millimeter rings in it. And so I'm not sure what the last cup engine you did, but you know, I know there's stuff guys out there that run 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6 millimeter stuff today uh, in, in NASCAR. So you're mm-hmm. talking about, you know, that's 20,000 or 24,000. What, what's a, a 564? Sound like an oil rail. Yeah, it's not like an oil rail. Yeah, I mean, think about it. Yeah. I mean, a 564 in thousands is 078 so it's mm-hmm. a third you got rings that are third the size of what was you know high tech 50 years ago but people still buy those ring sets all the time yeah but the reality is yeah joe's heard me say this analogy a billion times what i see is prevalent in the industry today is that what was high tech 20 years ago is still considered high tech when the reality is there's material advances like you were talking about with, you know, going to tool steel versus the cast iron, you know, DLC coatings versus not coatings, all these things that you pioneered literally 20 years ago are available to people today. It's like saying that, yeah, a Nokia, you know, brick phone was high tech 20 years ago compared to an old rotary dial phone. But we, we have an iPhone today. But people are still buying the Nokia brick phone on a daily basis because they just don't know any better. 
And I think that's one of the cool things about the, the podcast and having a guy like yourself sharing those experiences that, you know, yeah, you've lived and understand what is capable from a durability standpoint of using better materials, changing those push rod types, you know, seeing that uh, evolution uh, of rocker arm de- design and development that just because that was high tech 20 years ago doesn't mean that's the best choice for your engines today if you want to have durable power. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the yeah. the great opportunity that a guy like yourself can share. Actually, you basically already just did. You just kind of told your story and it was, um, you know, 039, a one millimeter ring compared to um, a 564. That's half the size. So in your career, you went from 564 to uh, 039 and probably made way more power and had a lot longer life with that 039 ring than you ever did with that 554 ring from way back in the day, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, that, you think that about ring allows you to do a lot of what? things, too, that as far as valve pockets. And, uh, you know, I know so now I see it's, it's you know, the valve pocket goes all the way down inside of the ring groove, you know. Before, we used to have to keep the valve pocket above the ring groove. If you got within, within about 50,000 of the ring groove, it was going to break into the ring groove and you know, break the piston. Now, the, the stuff you see now, the, the valve pocket actually goes down inside of the ring groove or, you know, or down below the ring groove. Mm-hmm. So it's it's that small ring enables you to do a lot of other things in the engine other than just, I mean, not just the fact that the ring may seal better and have less drag, but it enables you to do other things too as far as you know, the size of the combustion chamber. I mean, the ring actually being that thin, and the radial thickness being that low, it actually enables you to make a smaller combustion chamber because you can have the valve closer to the deck and you know, it goes down inside of the of the ring. That was the one thing that when I first showed the gas-ported piston ring to Glenn Clements, you know, at Clements Automotive, I'm sure you know Glenn, that was his first mm-hmm. impression was, you know, I don't know if this is going to be any better than having gas ports in my piston or not, but I sure like the idea of what it, what it lets me do with my piston design in terms of having more real estate mm-hmm. yeah. to work with. Yeah. And so back to, yeah, what sometimes it's what's not there that, that can, you know, can be that moment of creativity and spark. So, Hey, Joe, it really kind of goes back to what you were saying before is that this whole podcast idea of being able to share these thoughts and ideas was something that wasn't available in the past that is now. But like you said, this is something that can speak to that next generation uh, engine builder. You know, we, we've seen that a lot of the listeners are younger people working in shops that are trying and aspire, trying to accomplish the things that you've accomplished and you spoke a little bit about your time at, at Dorton's, you know, being it's that passion that drove you that you were always, you know, thinking about how to solve the problem, how to, what's that next angle. So what advice, I know I'm stealing your thunder here, Joe. Um, what advice would you give to that listener that is the younger guy that's either, you know, in a Votec school right now or, you know, just working in the shop, making his way as an engine builder or aspiring to be a head engine builder. What advice would you give to that, that listener, that next generation guy? Well, knowledge is everything. I can't tell you how much money I've lost and, and blown by uh, just a small piece of knowledge that I didn't have at the time. So knowledge is everything. you got to be like a sponge. you got to meet as many people as you can, and preferably you meet people that, that whatever sport you get and whatever type of racing you're getting into, you know, try to try to meet up with the people that are, competitive at the time and, and just try to get as much knowledge from them as you can that's probably the one thing 
uh, I'd say that's that's the most important. I've always been one to try to wing it and go out on my own and just figure it out on my own, and that's got me in trouble a few times. Uh, <laughs> it cost me a lot of money. Huh. Interesting. Well, okay. So obviously, we're coming down the home stretch on this episode. You guys have inspired me. Like I always love when Lake brings on like his. You know, I'll use the word heroes out there, as we said at the beginning, because it is. It's in, it's inspirational, and you guys, I'm, I'm going to go tear apart something now. I'm going to go like pull an engine out of my bracket car and go to work finally. But uh, I do have a couple of final questions. You didn't steal my thunder, Lake. I got you covered. Don't worry. I do want to okay, ask you, okay, Larry. Good, I, I got two things. The first one is a, a very serious question in that, okay, Larry, you got literally thousands of stories and situations that you've been in. And Lake mentioned John Callies and the, the Fiero and that project, and he was very proud of it. And I wonder, when you look back at all the different things that you've done, rules that have been created because of you, uh, different things you've done in cylinder heads, moving valves, all of that. When you look back, there's got to be something that you are so very proud of that it goes right to the top or near the top of the list, like something that I did that they didn't see or they didn't find out. It caused a great result. You want to race. Something that you are most proud of or nearly most proud of in your storied career, ranging all the way back, all that you've done. I want to know what that is, the thing that you hold most near and dear to your heart through this career that you've had as an accomplishment, not necessarily like a win, but something that you did that helped you achieve a win? Uh, it's hard to narrow it down to just one, but I, I would say probably doing the Yates head all those years of sorting that cylinder head out, that was, that was a lot of fun. A lot, a lot, a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we're finally getting that thing done, and they, they ran it for a long time, and I really got a lot of enjoyment out of that. That, and then when I started my own company, Powertech Engines, like I said, I, I was blessed with a lot of good guys, and it just, it just seeing that company sort of come together and all those guys working together like they did, and we went. I remember the first Cup win we got was with Jeremy Mayfield, Pocono. Yeah, and, uh, that was right about the time that we were selling waste. I was selling it to, to Roger Penske, but that was still all all our engine we done with you know. Those guys there, Powertech, it wasn't anybody's help from anywhere else. We did it all on our own, and that was that, that, that was amazing proud, all of us. And that was my next question. It's amazing that the two are linked, frankly, because I'm a Dale Earnhardt fan. And in 2000, I'm watching the Pocono 500 feeling really great about my driver and what's about to happen until. So why don't you give us your side of that story? Let's see. There's there's two different there's two different Pocono. The first Pocono, I think he he finished in front of uh, Jeff Gordon, and that was the first one for us. The second one, I think you're talking about Dale Earnhardt, was I think he did a little a bump and scooted on by him. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, that that was uh, oh well. I reckon Dale dished it out a few times. He just did the same thing to him. A little bump and uh, they slid up and under him he went. But when it's your engine oh, in the yeah, car. Earnhardt had that coming to him. Sure, but when it's your engine you, in the car. had that coming to him. When, when your engine's in the car, that's got to be a, an amazing feeling. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, just a fan, and that's, you know, one of your babies in there making it happen. Yeah. I can't imagine yeah. what that's like. Oh, it, it, it was. It was uh, pretty emotional for me. I mean, we, like I said, we struggled to work so long, so long and so hard and unbelievable long hours and to finally, finally get a win, especially that first one there with Jeremy. That was, that was pretty awesome. Amazing. Uh, now, Larry, am I right? Hang on here, Joe. Am I right in saying that the second Pocono win with Jeremy, with the Earnhardt situation, that mm-hmm. is the engine that got torn down at Sonoma, right? Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if it's the exact so same. Wasn't that race on a Monday? I mean, my, this Dude, I is, it's been 20 years, right? I thought the reason. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. remember right, we did get an engine. Was, we did get an engine tore down at Sonoma, though. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, yeah we got. One. I was pretty sure yeah. that was the weekend after Pocono, because Pocono mm-hmm. ran on Monday, and you guys had won like every pole that entire season, 2000. Y'all started the season. I don't think there was a race that wasn't maybe a plate race that you guys didn't sit on the pole. Every, y'all were killing everybody on qualifying all the time. And then Jeremy won that race. I'm not sure if that was the first race when you guys had that year or not, but it because it was on Monday, because the Sunday race got rained out, they ran on Monday, and that was the reason they said that they couldn't do the engine teardown at Pocono was because of the the time thing to get to the West Coast. So that's when they did it in Sonoma. That's my recollection okay. of that. that I do that remember I something totally about a rain delay and they were going to do it at Pocono. Because I remember I was I was so upset. with like, you know, of all places to tear somebody down because they sit on the pole at Sonoma. I mean, it's not, that's not an engine. That engine's not what got in the pole at Sonoma. Sonoma, I mean, there's no way. But, uh, and, and that was my argument. I do, I remember something about they were going to do it to race before, but they didn't because of, because of rain. Yeah. Your memory's better than mine. <laughs> for now. Uh, it's a lot better. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for now, yeah, for now. <laughs> well, it just, it, it's one of the stories, though. I mean, I, I, it's, it's one of those moments in me growing up and I guess my career, if you want to call it that, that it just stands out. It just, like a sore thumb, it's one of those mile marker moments of standing there watching them take that engine apart. And they literally, Joe, they took this engine they stripped it down. They even took the studs out of the block. And every single part of that engine went on a scale. And if there was a hole, they put a dial bore gauge in it. If it was a part that came out, they put a set of calipers on it. And they measured everything. And they did it in front of God and everybody in the garage area. And it was the most incredible, weird feeling. It's like, I should not be watching this. But you said you couldn't take your eye away from it because you're like, you know that this is what's been outrunning everybody every week. That was that was a low point for us. I mean, that that was hard. That that was really hard. Uh, You know, like I told him. I can't imagine. Yeah, I told him. I I was here. I wasn't there. I was here. And I ended up on the phone with with Max Elton. And it wasn't a a pleasant conversation. But, you know, my argument was, okay, nothing wrong with doing teardown. You've done it for years. But we always went to a closed room, the engine builder. Or someone from the team to tear the engine down, and then a NASCAR inspector or inspectors. But that was it. You know, everybody else was forbidden to go in there. And here we were done it in front of everybody right there in the garage area. And I accused them of sending out invitations because I mean everybody showed up, and a lot of them showed up with their digital cameras to take pictures. So it's like they knew it was coming. Uh, seemed like everybody in the garage area. To me, it's come across everybody in the garage area knew they was going to do that teardown like that. But us, yeah, that was that was definitely a low point for me. Mm. Well, way to end the show off on a downer, Lake. I know. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. <laughs> but I mean, but, I mean in, in a sense, though, Joe, it is the ultimate compliment. Yes. That I mean, let, let's be honest. The reason they did it is because Larry and his guys were that much further ahead of everybody else. I mean, they literally, without breaking any rules, had gone so far ahead of everybody else in the garage that no one else could compete. Now, now would they? Yes, everybody else, the, the Doug Yates, the Mark Cronquist, 
everybody else was going to figure it out. They were going to figure it out sooner or later. They would catch up eventually. But NASCAR decided this was their way of leveling the playing field, was by just making it available. So in a sense, it is the ultimate accomplishment because I can't ever remember a time before or a time after that they've done something like that. It almost sounds like the government, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's, I know, this is not supposed to get political, is it? No, it's not. But it's all right. It's all good, though. You can do whatever you want, Larry. Wow, this has been... You call the shot. This has been... Yeah. Larry, a final question as we, as we uh, you know, I don't want to... We could keep you for hours and hours. You have so many great pieces of information and story, et cetera, and so on. Uh, and I appreciate you coming on. I know our listeners do as well, uh, Lake and myself, like we're giddy. But, um, you know, what about now? You mentioned semi-retirement. I know you're doing, uh, what, dirt late models. Uh, is there anything that, you know, people who are listening to this, like, uh, could could follow along or support? Or, you know, what, what are you doing now? Not much of anything. I'm actually retired for the third time from, from building engines. And uh, my wife and I had opened up some storage buildings back in 2007. And we've been pretty heavy into that, managing that. And we got them, but we actually sold them here about a month ago. So right now I'm doing honeydews around the house and uh, beginning to miss engine building again, but I'm not going to do it again. I, I'll just maybe do build me a hot rod or two and hang it up for once and for all if I can. Lake, do you believe him? No, there's a full machine shop with a dyno in his backyard. The temptation is really going to be hard, right? So he can say that he's not going to do it, but the problem is he walks out in the back porch and have a cup of coffee in the morning. What am I going to do today? And he's standing there in that building, and he's, he knows there's a lathe and there's a CNC and all that stuff in there. It's going to be tough. But, again, you don't have to do any work for anybody else. You can just go build your own stuff, right? Uh, his hot rod engine, if he builds it for himself, yeah, I'd want that one. It'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you know, I've I, I best with engines all my life. I've never, other than my early days when I was a teenager and had my little street rod, I, other than that, I've never sat behind one of my motors. And I want to build a motor one time and sat behind it. <laughs> I, I don't know what it would well, be you like. you need to do it. Kind of yeah, I like it. I've never sat behind any kind of horsepower. Well, I invite you, you to, to come drag it. racing. You need to do it. And you are living right near a great racetrack to do it at. I think uh, I think they would love it, and I know I would. Larry, thank you very much for coming on Hidden Horsepower, presented by Total Seal. This has been fantastic. Just so many stories, lots of great information. This is exactly what our audience likes to hear about, and uh, you have you have sparked the inspiration in me, and I, I know many others out there as well. Lake, if you've got a final comment for Larry, lay in on him. But Larry, I, I do thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Larry, so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your schedule to do this and to share. I know you, you don't normally share a lot about your, your, your life and career with people, so we really appreciate you doing that. It's a gift, and we thank you for it. Uh, and then, yeah, when you get ready to you know build your hot rod motor so you can be behind one of your own engines, you know, give me a call. We'll hook you up with some with some piston rings. We'll, we'll, we'll do something tricking cool for you i know keith jones is uh, in the wall next to me i let him know that oh yeah larry wants to build a motor he wants to feel that power for himself we'll, we'll hook you up man so don't worry about it <laughs> all right i appreciate that larry thanks for being on the show really appreciate it all right thank you and there he goes larry wallace lake you sold it and you were right he was great a lot of great information a lot of great stories having to relive the mayfield moment as an earnhardt fan not not great but now I at least there's a silver lining to the story. Oh yeah, I mean he's he he delivered exactly what I hoped he would. We we could have gone on for two more hours. I know, we barely scratched the surface of what this man's accomplished and some of the interactions 
we didn't even talk about him doing midget engines and me walking in there one day and he's got a, a one of Bobby's sprint car you know, midget engines in there and he's trying to figure out mechanical fuel injection. And so, it, it, yeah, Larry's a great guy. I can't thank him enough for taking the time. And hopefully everybody enjoyed listening. And I'm sorry if I sit there and dominated the conversation too much. Me and him just going back and forth, geeking out on, on memories and things. And But, yeah, it's this is a true legend in NASCAR engine building. Again, my opinion, highest compliment ever. They raised the bar to that point that they rewrote the whole rule book because of that man. That's hidden horsepower right there, buddy. Well, I'm exactly. Right? That's, that's the essence of the whole podcast right there well exactly and don't apologize for anything for me you must remember the reason i do all of this is because i'm a i'm a little kid inside who is excited about engines and cars and uh, i saw that whole arc of his career i was alive you know he talked about 75 and those uh, early cylinder heads and it just everything he's saying is sparking some sort of memory or thought or I had heard about that or, you know, who won a race because of it, those different things. So, no, this was great. But something that you mentioned at the very end that I experienced at the very beginning is there's not a lot about Larry out there. He's not the kind of guy who's giving a lot of different interviews or if you do some searches on him, there's multiple Larry Wallace's involved in racing. So I think this was a service. I, I believe it's important to document some some of these stories and we just did oh yeah it's like i said most people get confused they call him up thinking he was, he's gonna grind a cam for him thinking he's the larry wallace that worked at home and moody was that was the the cam guru and he's like no different larry wallace yeah but is... that's just he's he's a humble guy too right he, he doesn't sit there and brag about all this stuff i mean the engines this guy put he's won more races and championships i mean it's it's crazy uh, what what he's accomplished over his career. Uh, so, yeah, but he's one of those unknown legends, you know. An unknown legend may be a new uh, feature on Hidden Horsepower. Hidden Horsepower, unknown legends. Not that he's unknown within the industry, but certainly within the masses. And one other thing that comes out of this that is kind of exciting to me, you run into these guys and they have done everything, right, in their lives. They've genuinely done everything except... Not really. He hasn't sat behind one of his own engines since he was a teenager. That is something that must be rectified. And uh, I think, you know, maybe he's on the case. Uh, I will definitely be following up on that one. Uh, He lives in Concord. I live in Concord. I will go see him soon. So don't worry. We'll make sure we follow up on that one. Exactly. And the home of the great drag strip that I mentioned is right there as well. So it's all lining up. You know, he wants to go out on an oval or cruise around, but I just think it would be really cool out on a track. But uh, there you go. Lake, excellent work. This was so much fun. But really, in the end, we're just trying to kind of share knowledge with people who are building engines, maybe for a living or as a hobby. Someone might be building a bracket engine or a stock eliminator racer or a dirt track racer, and they're thinking of themselves man i need piston rings and they found our podcast let's say they want to take the next step and get on the horn with you guys and talk a little bit about their package and what they need and what is possible and maybe they don't want that what what were you saying five sixteenths everybody's getting the the brick phone still uh 564 564 just don't don't do that how can they be yeah, on the cutting edge of technology well pick up the phone 623-587-7400 as Keith Jones always says, make us your first call. Before you buy your pistons, before you do that, give us a call. Because once you've already bought that piston that has 564, 564 316 ring grooves in it, now our options are limited. There's still some things we can do with that, but your options are limited. If you call us first and talk through, hey, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. 
you know, is it a boat motor? Is it a you know, drag race engine? Is it endurance? Is it an industrial, their compressor? You know, whatever it is, if it's got a piston and it's going to need piston rings, give us a call before you finalize the details of that build. Between, you know, Keith, Kevin, Bobby, myself, we just got August uh, Cedar Strand, who's just coming to work here, who worked at Speed of Motive for years, worked at Edelbrock. I mean, yeah, between the five of us, there's a lot of experience. We're happy to help. So we do all day, every day is try to give tech advice because we know, okay, the, what ring package and design for a daily driver streetcar is going to be very different than what you're going to put in, in an airplane or in a boat or in an endurance race car or a pro stock car. But we do, we do all of those things. We can help you understand what choices to make in order to optimize your engine build so you get the most efficiency and longest life out of it. And oddly enough, that little bit that little bitty piston ring inside the engine actually has a huge influence on the on the outcome of both those things: performance and longevity. Piston ring is right there in the middle of it. So give us a call: five eight seven six two three. 587-7400. We'll help you out. There you have it. Lake, great job. Uh, good times. I really appreciate it. Thank you for uh, for being on the show. Thanks, Joe, as always. He's Lake Speed Jr. I'm Joe Costello. This is Hidden Horsepower presented by Total Seal. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Just go to the TotalSeal.com website and you can listen to the episodes right there. If you do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please write us a review. That makes a big difference in how many people get to see the podcast when they go through iTunes. So definitely subscribe, enable notifications, and write us a review. And that's going to do it for this episode of Hidden Horsepower. Larry Wallace was awesome. More episodes to come. My name is Joe Costello. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at WFO Joe. And we'll see you next time on Hidden Horsepower, presented by Total Seal.